Daily Premier League action and reaction. This is Football Social Daily. Hello, this is Football Social Daily. I'm Jim Salverson and on today's edition of our Daily Premier League podcast, we have some actual football to discuss. No silly comments from players, no VAR controversy and the only thing that was kicked in anger and posted on social media was a ball. So good news. We're going to be talking about Liverpool's slight closing of the gap between them and Manchester City with a win over crisis club Leicester City in a bit. We're also going to talk about Arsenal as they picked up their fourth red card of 2022, but also three points in their hunt for European positions. And we'll be talking Manchester United as that club lurches from one issue to the next. To do all that, Joel Tudor on the podcast and Niall McCorn. How you doing, boys? Good, thanks, guys. Oh, good, thanks. I was hoping Marley was going to be on today's podcast because I had some exclusive Newcastle news, and this is proper exclusive. So Ian Brennan, who you'll normally hear on Wednesday nights on this podcast, he lives up in the northeast of England, and he spotted Kieran Trippier at his gym last night. So Ian was in the swimming pool, Kieran Trippier apparently on a sun lounger next to the swimming pool, which I've never understood as a thing. It's like, why lie on a sun lounger inside next to a pool it makes no sense but in his words he said Eddie Howe might say it's a minor knock but Trippier was limping around like John Wayne next to the pool and probably will be chalked off performing at the weekend so Newcastle could be without Kieran Trippier for their weekend game and given the form he's been in that is not good news for Newcastle or for Marley but he's not here so we won't get his comments on that instead we'll get stuck straight into Liverpool 2 Leicester City nil. One of last night's games and Mo Salah was back, started on the bench. The front three for Liverpool was Firmino, Diaz and Jota last night. Now, it was Jota that got both goals, a good performance for him in a Liverpool shirt. But it was Diaz and it was his main debut for the Reds, his first game. So what did you make of his performance last night, Joel? Yeah, it was a. he looked every part of his price tag, put it that way. He just looks like a typical Klopp player who's just you know really tenacious and hard working off the ball and I think that's with Klopp he's always wanted to find players that fit his style of play because I think if they were to sign any other midfielder I think they would link to maybe Kingsley Coleman but I don't think he's the type of player that would suit his play style as well as for example Diaz was and he was just so hard working a constant threat to Leicester all night Um, and to be fair he looked like he'd play for the club for quite a long time to be honest because he just seamlessly fit into how they want to play so yeah it's worrying signs for everyone else <laughs> put it that way but it's uh it's, it's probably it's good signs for Liverpool fans because I always mentioned on the podcast how um the transition from Mane, Firmino and Salah will have to come at some point obviously it doesn't look like them three are going to slow down anytime soon I think Firmino is probably the only one who's kind of at risk of potentially leaving but I mean when you've got players like Jota who's chipping in with the goals and you've got Diaz who looks just as good as any of the front three at the moment then I mean it's yeah it's a seamless transfer isn't it so it looks as though obviously you know with new players sometimes they come out flashing the pan and then go on a bit of a lull but I don't know it looks like with this guy he 
he seems like he hits the ground running just in terms of his play style. It was only on Monday we were talking about the rejuvenation of Liverpool's front three and how they were going to handle that, but it seems like it's well underway at the moment. And I think you're right. For me, for me, no, I think a bit of a disappointing performance, underwhelming maybe last night again for Liverpool. He looks like he's going to be the first out the door, but there is definitely a succession plan in place there for who's going to come in and replace them. I mean, in truth, no, Liverpool found it pretty easy last night. Leicester had just one shot on target. Schmeichel kept them in it pretty much, made some brilliant saves. Now, they're 10 points off Europa League places now, Leicester City, and in really poor form. Is the season over for them already? Before it's even really got started, we're talking 15 games left of the season. It doesn't look like they're going to catch those top four, maybe even top six places. So are they now looking ahead to next season already? And is that hugely disappointing for the club, considering what they've achieved in recent years? Yeah, I think it is hugely disappointing, particularly considering the recent form, some of the results this term. I mean, losing 4-1 to Nottingham Forest in the FA Cup, having not played against them for eight years, they're in a division below to lose in the manner they did as defending FA Cup champions, that would have really hurt Leicester City fans. And it's not the first time they've been on the end of a pretty poor result this season. They lost in the Europa League group stages to Legia Warsaw, the Polish champions. They really should have beaten them. They didn't. They lost 1-0. They managed to to draw with Napoli 2-2. Um, uh, on their own patch and that was the start of the Europa League campaign and everyone thought that you know those two sides would be the ones to go all the way and and really contest deep into the Europa League in the end they lost their last group stage game to Napoli in Naples 3-2 which knocked them out of the competition they are still in European football they do have a trip to Denmark to play Randers which is a team I've never heard of no disrespect to any Danish people (laughs) listening who support Randers but I can't say that Prior to the inception of the Europa Conference League, I uh, I had any idea who they are. That's at the end of the month, so there's still silverware on the table for Leicester City. But in the terms of in terms of the Premier League, I think you're right. I think maybe eyes should starting to be turning towards the summer now. It's not out of the question that Leicester City could go on a run and finish in one of those European places. I don't think the top four is in the question. I think you're right with that. But I definitely think that if they can find the form and consistency that they have shown in the two seasons before now, there's no reason they can't go on a run between now and the end of the season and finish in the Europa League places. It'll take some effort though, considering the position they're in at the moment, but they've got the players to do it. They've got the quality to do it. I think the problem is, is maybe they've just run out of steam a little bit. And Brendan Rodgers mentioned before last night's game with Liverpool that he was going to make changes. We saw that. Someone like Wilfred Ndidi and Daniel Amate both playing at centre-half exactly like they did in the reverse fixture when Leicester actually beat Liverpool before Christmas. Uh, He said he was going to ring the changes and that was absolutely the case. I didn't think Leicester were disgraced last night. There's no shame in losing 2-0 to Liverpool. It was a much better performance and Brendan Rodgers said after the game actually that the supporters would have been driving home from Anfield feeling far prouder than they would have done driving back from the city ground only a matter of days before in the FA Cup against Forest. So there is a small improvement, um, albeit it's still a defeat. There, There is an improvement to be taken from last night. Um, but he's also said, the manager, that he's going to start thinking about clearing some players out in the summer. And if they don't want to be there and they're not performing, then they have no rightful place at Leicester City. And I think that's understandable considering the standards they've set for themselves. Um, they need to reach those standards again because they have slipped this year. He was still pretty critical after the game, though, Brendan Rodgers, of his players. And he questioned desire and hunger and performance once again, even though he kind of made that statement that they will they did better than they did at Nottingham Forest. I mean, and given those comments he made 
after the Nottingham Forest games where he questioned players' futures at the club. It was a proper expression of disappointment to the media. It felt like there maybe had been that kind of anger in the dressing room for a few weeks and it had now spilled out into something more public. Liverpool's a difficult place to go. We know that. But did you expect more of a reaction from Brendan Rodgers' team? After that public criticism, did you expect to see... Because they they were lacklustre against Liverpool. They did create virtually nothing the whole game. I think you're right. I think Brendan Rodgers would have understood that it's better than the Forest game, but the bar was so low for that Forest game, wasn't it? I mean, to lose to a championship side, to be 3-0 down Mm. inside the first half an hour or whatever it was. I remember watching the game on TV thinking, oh my word, Leicester are in serious trouble here. And I I do think that in terms of... uh, wanting a reaction going to Anfield is not the easiest place to try and get that so I mean let's be honest here were Leicester gonna beat Liverpool anyway probably not um, even though they did so before Christmas it was a, a strange game Lookman scored the winner in that game and it felt like everything kind of went right for Leicester City defensively when they had a, a cobbled together back four it seemed to work out for them Liverpool just huffed and puffed a little bit in that match and they couldn't find a way through but like you say it wasn't exactly a, a difficult um, evening for, for Liverpool last night. It didn't feel like they needed to get out of second gear. So yeah, maybe we could have expected a, a bigger reaction from Leicester City. But I think what we need to understand is for Leicester to have finished fifth in the last two seasons is some achievement. And I know that they won the Premier League in 2016, but you can almost discount that at times because it is such a freak outcome that they won the title. So for them to finish fifth two seasons in a row, it's much like West Ham now. We were talking about West Ham in the transfer window, Jim, weren't we? About why didn't they strengthen? This is a really good chance for them to finish in the Champions League. When would that ever happen again with West Ham? And I fear that next season we might see West Ham in a similar spot. Mid-table, battling for the Europa League spots. And that is how tight this Premier League is. That is how fine the margins are. That, you know, maybe just finishing fifth in the same fashion, last day of the season, just missing out on the Champions League on the very final game. I think that that can knock the stuffing out of you, knock the wind out of you. It's almost like, oh, what what have we got to do to finish in the Champions League places? And to keep up that consistency and momentum and level of performance for three seasons is a tough ask. It really is a a tough ask. So um, I think that maybe this is a moment in time in which Leicester City just need to ride out and they'd still have quality players. They've still got a very accomplished manager in Brendan Rodgers. And I'm sure that between now and the end of the season, they will find a, a run of form that will see them uh, move up the league table. But I don't think it's anything from what we saw last night in terms of that reaction to suggest that it's going to be all guns are blazing from here on in. How about Liverpool then, Joel? Because the result last night closes the gap between Liverpool and Manchester City to a tiny just nine points with 15 games to play. Now, Jurgen Klopp downplayed their chances of closing that gap any further. He says... He said something like, We're, Man City aren't on our toes yet, or something along those lines. Are they still in the title race? Have Liverpool got a chance, or is this already City's season for glory? I think it just it just comes down to consistency. I think I have more confidence in Manchester City's consistency when it comes to you know the final eight games of the season rather than Liverpool. And, obviously, and to be fair, both of them have been ridiculously consistent, especially in the last like 10 to 15 games. And I've been impressed with Liverpool being able to keep sustaining the the challenge without Salah and Mane because I think I remember and I was included in saying that they're going to fall off big time when Salah and Mane actually uh, go off to the Afcon. But they've, I mean, they've they've roasted the challenge so well, and the players who've come in have just really 
made their mark in the side. So obviously a win, they've got a game in hand which would take them to 54 points, which is just six away from City. And I mean, six six points is nothing in this league. But then when it's Manchester City, six points does seem like a very big ask as well because they just don't drop points at all. So I think when Liverpool uh, meet City again, I'm not sure when that is, is in April potentially, then that's going to be, you know, I think that could be a potentially a title decider because every game that they go into, you know, whether they play, you know, the likes of like Brighton or um, a Watford, you just know what the outcome's going to be. It's just the games against each other. I think um, in the season where City finished on 100 points and Liverpool finished on 98 points, it was the game with City and Liverpool which decided who actually won that title. So, I think it's going to be another one of those seasons. I don't think they're both as good as that season. They were just kind of aliens in that season. But I think with this one, that that game, and especially those ones against the, the teams who are trying to get into the top four are going to be really difficult and will decide it. But I still think for me, City are just, they're just far too convincing. I feel like with Liverpool, there are games where teams will get at them. Uh, as we've seen in the season, I think I remember when Brentford drew with them 3-3. Um, so I think that there are games that they will slip up in, but it's just so tight. And I, I wouldn't rule them out, but I definitely think City are, are kind of a, an inch higher in terms of their consistency and their quality, I would say. I think you're right. It's the consistency that City have. The ability to win, even when they don't play well, is just something that's quite remarkable in that Pep Guardiola team. It's hard to see him being caught, in my opinion. We're going to talk about Arsenal shortly, who have now got more red cards this season. That's four than goals. Sorry, this year. That's four than goals. They've only scored two goals. <laughs> so, I mean, they're quite impressive. They've got more red cards this season than goals, wouldn't it? Well, they haven't <laughs> scored that many either. Anyway, we'll get on to that shortly. But first, I need to tell you very quickly about Spond, which is a new app, which is an absolute must-have if you run a sports team. Whether it's your kids' school team or your mates' five-a-side or even your company squash league because this app takes all the effort and all the stress out of that organization and best of all it's free so spond automates everything from sending out invites to see who's available for games to creating polls about things like i don't know getting a new kit for your team to actually helping you get the subs in after the game the all-important and most difficult bit of any team organization and it's all within one app and because it's all within one app on average, it saves the average coach or league organiser two and a half hours of admin every single week. And with that two and a half hours of admin, you could probably squeeze in an extra one and a half Premier League games to watch on TV. So there is proof of how useful this is as well. Even during the pandemic, when sports teams were less of an option for people and they weren't doing as much football and whatever, the user base grew by 34%. So it is clearly working. It's clearly something people like. And if you want to give it a try for free and join the millions of other users using Spond, just give it a search in the App Store or give it a Google. S-P-O-N-D. That's Spond. Give it a go for free and you'll get it in an ad-free environment as well. It really is super useful if you're one of the organisers in your sporting world. You've got a minute or so to go and Google Spond and find out what it's all about because we'll be back in a second to talk about Arsenal versus Wolves on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. 
Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. Wolverhampton Wanderers nil, Arsenal one is the next focus of today's podcast. Not the biggest win or the best of results for Arsenal, you'd say, but it felt like an important one for Mikel Arteta. Niall, given recent events and all the stuff with Obama Yang and him leaving the club and their recent run of form, just getting three points on the board was really important in this game. Yeah, we spoke yesterday about how close we thought this game might be because Wolves have got, aside from Manchester City, the best defence in the Premier League this season. They've conceded the fewest goals outside of the league leaders and Arsenal, they've got a striker who's left the club in Aubameyang. They've got a striker who isn't really firing at the moment in Lacazette, who's out of contract in the summer. And all of their goals really have kind of been channeled through those young players, Saka, uh, Martinelli and Emil Smith-Rowe. And so our question was, how are Arsenal going to break through that tight Wolves defence? We said it was going to be close and they managed to do so. Um, the defender, Gabriel, popping up with the goal in the end. But, but you're right, this is a big result. This is a really big result for Mikel Arteta. And I think that because it's Wolves and it's a midweek game and it's two sides who are kind of just on the cusp of finishing in the Champions League spots, people don't really see it as that. But in the context of the Premier League table, this game could be really, really important. Only yesterday... When we were previewing this game, were we discussing that Wolverhampton Wanderers, if they beat Arsenal, they'd go above them, move into sixth, and then we could be talking about Wolves, believe it or not, as a dark horse to finish in the top four. Um, as it stands, that happened. It's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, I think that's credit to Wolves, but as it stands, Wolves have dropped down to eighth, and Arsenal are now fifth, just a point behind West Ham with two games in hand on them. So, look how much has changed in the context of just a midweek Premier League run of fixtures. Tottenham losing to Southampton was big. Manchester United only drawing with Burnley was big. And then Arsenal taking points off of someone who are going to try and aim for the same finish as they are. Top four, albeit it would be a massive achievement for Wolves. Huge result. So the difference between Arsenal and Wolves is now five points. And Arsenal all of a sudden are in pole position to finish in fourth spot. So it's just one of those where... You're absolutely right with everything that happened with Arsenal during the January window, the furor around Aubameyang leaving, and that was a mess. Let's not be on. Let's um, not make any bones about it. The way that Aubameyang's hit out at Arteta, the way that Arteta stood his ground, it's all been a bit of a mess at Arsenal. But it must give Arsenal fans a bit of confidence and a bit of belief that if Mikel Arteta's managing to get this tune out of Arsenal with this almost sort of strung together side then imagine what the potential could be next season if they get their recruitment right in the summer. So I think it was a huge result for Arsenal and for Arteta last night. I really do. I mean, you could see how important the result was at the end of the game. Arsenal celebrated wildly at their 1-0 victory at Wolves and Ruben Neves was very critical of that, Joel, after the game. He said, we saw the way they celebrated the win and it shows the levels we are. I didn't see Arsenal celebrating like this in the past 10 years. It was like they won the league. Does Ruben Neves have a bit of a point? I mean, should it feel that significant to Arsenal or is the way they celebrated that victory just one game, just a 1-0 win? It's a little bit embarrassing that it's that important for a club like Arsenal who have, in their recent history, won everything. Well, I mean, I'm I'm sure it'll come as a big relief when they've scored less uh, goals than they've had red cards and they've had like consecutively five games without uh, winning a game. So... I'm sure they're just thinking, thank God that we can actually win a game again because it looked like it was never going to happen. But it, yeah, I mean, it, it was funny the Arsenal fans' reaction to that comment. It really reeled them in. So fair play to Neves for that. But 
yeah, I think I think it's just testament to, you know, we were speaking about it on the podcast on Tuesday, how Wolves, like, they conceded the least, but they've also scored the third least in the league. So they're at a bit of a, a paradox, aren't they, where they just they grind out results, but then obviously when they become faced with good quality players like Arsenal's forward line, bar the striker, you would say he's a very talented trio, uh, Bukayo Sacco, Martin Odegaard and Gabriel Martinelli. Um, and to be fair, I, I, although Niall said it's a makeshift side, I mean, to be fair, that's their strongest side, and it has been for the the past bit of the season. With you know, I just mean in had... terms of the the actual squad, Joel. Like if you look at it in, in terms of what they've got, um, you know, Lacazette's on his way out. Who's going to play through the middle? Martinelli is obviously still young and fresh, but they need someone else. I just think that in terms of it being makeshift, it's it's good that Arteta's still getting this out of his side, considering you know, what he's got to work with. And I think that if he was given a bit of cash in the summer and a chance to make some decent signings, then, you know, who knows where they could go, I suppose. Yeah, I hear that. But I mean, he spent 120 million in the summer and he's got a pretty solid uh, spine in his side now of obviously Aaron Ramsdale, Gabriel and Ben White, which are his fi- like fixed guys. In the, in Is the it a top four team though? In terms of the personnel, well, I mean, job, well, looking at do you the think ta- you look at Arsenal and go, you're a top four team? Yeah, well, looking at the table, I mean, of course they are. They're, they're one of the favourites now, for sure. They've got pretty decent consistency, apart from this kind of last five games, which just sent them on a bit of a haywire. Um, you can see, literally, when you look at the team sheet, obviously, the striking option, they're going to be massively disappointed in the summer that they couldn't get uh, Dusan Vlahovic, which would have probably elevated them into a different side. Um, but that's the situation Arsenal are in. They can't attract this calibre of players. So I'd... they're a, they're a twenty three man squad. Yeah, literally anyone anyone in that kind of twenty three probably has a chance of featuring, which is an issue. Apart from that that front three, I would say, and this is the this is the issue in that, which I raised a while ago, which is that Arsenal are no longer the side who can attract the very best. So what do you do if you can't attract the very best? You have to start from the ground up and sign the youngest talents who could potentially be that player. Because as we've seen in the summer, they went on a wild goose chase with Vlahovic, uh, potentially Morata. Like, they're never going to get these guys. And the, the, that's the, the reality that Arsenal fans have to face is that they're not that side at the moment. And fair play to, you know, the recruitment. I mean, Odegaard's looking decent, but then... I mean, you've got... Well, Aaron Ramsdale's probably another one, but I mean, the fullbacks I'm not convinced with at all still. Um, and obviously, they're missing that 15 goals, 20 goals a season from Aubameyang, which I really don't know where they're going to get that from now. Um, but I guess the, the the kind of main positive is that they're winning games without having a very distinct out-and-out striker. But I don't think Aubameyang was a massive miss anyway because I think I've seen a statistic that he'd not scored in 50 of his last 70 Arsenal games. So he's on a very downward trajectory anyway. Um, but I I do wonder who they're going to use to fill that void unless all these younger players next season start elevating the game. Like Martinelli starts becoming a 10-15 game player. Uh, Odegaard becomes that. That, that's my, that might be what they need because in football right now, there is little top strikers available. And if there are, they're not going to Arsenal. I think... With them having a, a small squad, I think that's Arteta trying to streamline his side. And Pep Guardiola does this. I think Manchester City have only got a 23-man squad as well, which sounds like a, a reasonable amount of players. But actually, in the grand scheme of the Premier League, you see squads now 26, 27, 28 players. Not all of them can play, obviously. 
But um, to have 23 players is, is, is quite a streamlined squad from Arsenal's perspective. And I think I'm right in thinking they've got the youngest average age in their squad in the Premier League. So you're talking about young players, like Joel says, who are going to be the ones that they're going to try and attract. Young, hungry players who can perform. Um, for them to be doing what they're doing, I think that we, we deserve, uh, they deserve a bit of credit. And I think we should give them credit because we've hammered Arsenal on this podcast for some of the decisions they've made. We've hammered Arteta at times for some of the results and defeats that his side have had and the, the kind of the shambles that have uh, happened around the Emirates at times behind the scenes. But you know, credit where credit's due. Big win for Arsenal last night. And now they look in pole position to get in the top four, as Joel says. Let's talk about one of the one of the parts. I was going to say specific, specific. I can't say the word. One of the moments of the game that became the talking point, and it was Martinelli's quite bizarre red card. So Martinelli was sent off for two bookable offences, neither of which you could have too many complaints for, but they happened in the same passage of play. So he shoved Daniel Podence as he was about to take a throw in, and the referee played advantage then he barged over one of the Arsenal players I forget who it was actually and Michael Oliver stopped play and showed Martinelli two yellow cards back to back resulting in a sending off now Mikel Arteta said it was ridiculous but if you look at a guy if both events deserved yellow cards it was right that he got those yellow cards and was sent off I guess the argument Niall is that if he knew he was going to get one booking he might have moderated his play and not made the second sloppy challenge. But do you think it was fair? Was it the right decision? Yeah, disappointing for Arsenal. Their 35th red card of the season, which is more than they've got goals. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. I think it was the right 34 decision. 34 of them were Granit Xhaka. <laughs> yeah, well, no surprise there. I think it was the right decision, personally. Uh, I think it's bizarre and strange and unusual, but I think that's just because it doesn't happen that often. And... I think Michael Oliver applied the law properly and I've seen some people on social media suggest that or even in punditry last night suggesting that Michael Oliver just wants to be the centre of attention and be in the news. I'm telling you now the last thing that a referee wants is to be the centre of attention and be in the news Mm -hmm. because that impacts them in their line of work. You know if if they've made a shocking decision an absolute howler they get demoted. You know so referees have pride in making the right decision as well and I think he did make the right choice. Now I think you're also spot on, Jim, when you say that Martinelli probably wouldn't have gone and made the second foul had he known he would have got booked for the first. Now, the first one is he pushes him. It's probably a yellow. The second one is reckless. He shoulder barges him straight through the centre of his back and it's probably a yellow as well. So he gets two yellows and gets sent off. Now, it's naivety from a young player to commit those two fouls in frustration because I think he felt that he was fouled initially and he's probably a bit frustrated that he didn't get the free kick. So he gets up, pushes one player, chases down the second Wolves player and barges him through the back. And I guess it's a little bit of naivety from Martinelli's perspective. It's unusual from Michael Oliver's perspective, the referee, because we never see this, two yellow cards given in the same passage of play. But you have to suggest he is right. If it's two yellow card offences, he plays advantage and then um, Martinelli goes and fouls him again. So they're two separate passages of play, technically, I suppose you could argue. The first one, advantage played, the second one, and therefore it's a yellow for each. Now, it's like, it's the accumulation, isn't it? It's like trying to knock off two offences into one yellow card. I understand 
why fans might be frustrated at that but I don't think it's the wrong decision personally I just think the we- the reason that everyone's kind of up in arms about it a little bit is because it's weird mm-hmm. we don't really ever see it um, and it also wound me up some of the pundits on uh, on TV talking about common sense I mean I understand there's an element of common sense um, in, in sort of management skills and refereeing is a lot about managing the game uh, in terms of the way it unfolds and stuff like that but there's no common sense when it comes to the rules Common sense would be for Martinelli not to commit two fouls in a short space of time and risk getting sent off. It's not up to the referee to show common sense. It's up to the referee no. to apply the rules. And I think that's where we get a little bit diluted um, when it comes to, to discussing these sorts of incidents. But personally, I think it was it was the right decision, as weird as it was. Arsenal up to fifth, as we said, in with a chance of those European places. Wolves drop down slightly, but given their complete... Well, their, their, their lack of attacking impetus this season, I guess that's probably what the Wolverhampton Wanderers are expecting. It'll be interesting to see how happy they feel with Bruno Large at the end of this season. Very good defensively, very poor going forward. Next, we're going to talk about Manchester United on Football Social Daily because it's turning into, a well, if it's not already, a bit of a meme club. There is so many issues to sort out at that football club and we'll tackle some of them next on Football Social Daily. Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Welcome back. Final bit of today's Football Social Daily. We're going to talk about Manchester United, a club that is never far away from the headlines and a club that seemingly is never far away from upset and trouble as well. First off, we're going to talk about the manager situation shortly and who might come in, but Cristiano Ronaldo is getting the headlines again. Now, this is partly because a headline with Cristiano Ronaldo in it gets those delicious clicks for various news outlets. So he does feature maybe more than he otherwise should. But the latest report is he has become disillusioned with life at Old Trafford. He's called in his agent for what have been described as showdown talks. He's brought a lot of drama with him, Joel. This is your club, Manchester United, and he's offered something on the pitch, but maybe often not as much as his billing would suggest. How is it looking now, the decision to bring Cristiano Ronaldo back to Manchester United? Is it looking like it might have been a mistake or do you still think it was the right choice? First of all, when you hear like the, the term showdown talks, just run for your life from that article because I guarantee it's going to be the most <laughs> clickbaitable article you've ever read in your life. Um, and to be honest, I don't really, I take every article when it comes to United with a pinch of salt because as we all know, it's it's the easiest news generator in the world. But um, with Ronaldo, I feel like he's become a bit of a scapegoat and that's purely because he is what he is and everyone's forgetting that he's not the player he was once was as well I think everyone when he remembered him at Old Trafford 12 years ago was that flying winger doing all the tricks super dynamic he was involved in the game constantly and now he's 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 a, just an efficient goal machine I think everyone's argument is that when he doesn't get goals he's kind of anonymous on the pitch but then I also question the fact that our forwards our forwards just do not give any service to any of the strikers as a matter of fact not just Ronaldo but even when Cavani's on the pitch he looks very isolated Um, I just think the team's very in a dysfunctional way in terms of the passage of play and the way in which the the front line of clinical or not they all seem very 
self-centered i would say when it comes to being in front of gold they seem to always never see the right option or the right move and for me ronaldo i think i don't have much complaints about him this season because without him we wouldn't even be in the champions league uh, knockout stages i think he scored a good five or six not five yeah about five goals in the group stages um when we came back from behind against villarreal and then came back from behind against atalanta away like all of these games without him, we would have been out of the competition. But I think... Is it ultimately worth the drama? Is that what you're saying? It's like having a slightly psychotic girlfriend. But I mean, I mean what might cause you... Steady on, Jim. And I don't know if it's that bad, Jim. But, um, yeah, yeah, but I mean, I don't, I, I don't know what you mean by drama because if, if there's anything, I think it's the fact that he's probably challenged the mentality of a lot of them in there, which I absolutely think every club needs. I think the more drama mm. has come from probably upstairs um and around the players who actually want to leave i don't to be honest for me ronaldo's just been made to be the guy to fall on because he is the stature that he is and because everyone's remember forgetting that he is 37 years old now um but i definitely reaffirm and 100 percent believe that the only reason he was signed was to stop manchester city getting him and if that was the case then yes it was it was the wrong decision because he didn't originally fit the plan that was actually laid out um obviously i love having ronaldo back to the club it's like a childhood dream for many of us um but i mean he's not the same guy he was and he's not in the long-term plans of the club but if you're gonna blame him for drama i mean if you're gonna have a guy with a world-class mentality who's literally on a day-to-day basis making decisions to win um, compared to, I bet, a lot of the younger guys in there, and he even called a lot of them out subliminally, saying that, you know, the young guys think they'll have it worked out when I was the one, you know, in the changing, in the training ground earlier than most of the senior players. He sees all that, and I think he realises how different United are to when he was there, which I'm sure has been massively different. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up wanting to leave because I could never imagine Ronaldo in the Europa League because I don't see us getting top four this season. Um, but I think I don't think it's like a decision made already. I think he'll definitely wait to see what the plans are with the manager next season. But yeah, for me, it's just scapegoating, to be honest. There's certainly players in that Manchester United team who have bought more negative headlines than Cristiano Ronaldo this season, let's say. Talking of that managerial situation, I think a lot of the problems for me come from Manchester United not learning their lessons in terms of appointing interim managers. And there now seems to be this kind of limbo state for the club as they await to see who comes in next. There are various reports around this, Nile. One, Mauricio Pochettino is apparently the favourite amongst the players in the dressing room. They want him to come in. Looks like he's going to be leaving PSG at the end of the season. The new rumour that's come to light today, and this has been driven by an article in The Star, I think, is that Spain manager Luis Enrique could be a shock candidate to take over at Manchester United. Again, come the end of the season. Who do you feel is the right choice? Is it between those two or do you think there's still more candidates to come into the mix that maybe we haven't considered yet? Yeah, I think that with a job the size of Manchester United, you have to understand that it's one of the biggest jobs in world football. And even though Manchester United haven't been as successful as they should have been and they would have wanted to be in the last five or six years, 
it's still a huge high profile job and I think you need to be a certain type of character and a certain type of personality to be able to take that job on. Manchester United is the biggest job in, in club football in this country and the pressures that come with it, win, lose or draw, need to be able to be dealt with. Now, Ralph Rangnick, I think, is doing a very admirable job at the moment as interim manager and he'll be part of the process in my eyes, of deciding who the next Manchester United manager is. And he'll be well aware of the trials and tribulations that go into managing a football club the size of Manchester United. So I think that it's important that whoever United do pick, they have experience of managing a big club. And Maurizio Pochettino does have experience, A, of managing in the Premier League. He's managed a decent-sized club in Tottenham, but he's managed another equally big club in France, in, in PSG. So he's dealt with big personalities, He's also dealt in dealt with a Tottenham side who were kind of squeezed in terms of budget but had very good players um, and managed to get them playing and performing. So I think Pochettino certainly is a candidate in terms of does he tick the certain boxes that maybe you need to become a Manchester United manager. I think yes, he does. The only thing that brings him down is, is the trophy record. But that being said, Manchester United also haven't won trophies in the last five years. So I think that there's an, an element there in which Pochettino and United might be the perfect match at the right time. That's just a personal opinion, of course. The other candidate that seems to be bandied around a lot is Eric Tenag, the Ajax manager, someone who has a concrete philosophy, someone who has had good bodies around him. Obviously, um, Edwin van der Sar at Ajax, a former Manchester United goalkeeper, won the Champions League there. But for, for me, Eric Tenag, as big as a club as Ajax are, um, it, it's, it's a world away from Manchester United. And we've seen that with the acquisition of someone like Donny van der Beek, who... You know, hasn't really been given much game time under three different Manchester United managers and has since moved on loan to Everton. So, you know, you're talking about picking people here, potential candidates that fit the bill. And I think that with other candidates possibly coming available in the summer, I think that it's a really important decision that Manchester United have to make. So I do think that Pochettino is the outstanding candidate at the moment. Um, you know, Antonio Conte was a name who was linked when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer first was dismissed. He's since gone to Tottenham, so he's off the table. I think Zidane, those talks seem to have died down a bit. Luis Enrique is an interesting one. Obviously managed Barcelona, a huge club, but does he have the experience and the know-how to manage in the Premier League? I think all of the angles are pointing towards Maurizio Pochettino, considering the available candidates out there and the tools that he's got to be able to do a decent job at Old Trafford. That's just my opinion, of course, but I think that it's understandable why Poch is being linked to the role at the moment. Finally, Joel, what do they need to do? Whoever comes in, be it Pochettino or whatever big name comes into the club, how do they make sure they aren't the latest name on the failed manager list of the post-Fergie era? By not following the rule book that the United board have set for them, which is that you need to follow our DNA. Um, the m new manager who needs to come in needs to put his own DNA into it. Like I think we've discussed previously, the days of the Ferguson DNA, the United way is gone. Football's moved on and so should the club and they need to move on because they're behind in many, many, many areas and not just on the football inside. Um, so I think if, for example, Pochettino comes in, he needs to have full control over that. Um, and he also needs to get out players who clearly do not want to be there um, and just buying the right kind of personnel who fit 
players who really actually want to play for the club not ones who you know in the past we've had a strategy of kind of signing many mercenaries of the likes of Angel Di Maria and Falcao who you know in the past never really would have ever been gone near and suddenly the the strategy changed um but I think the, whoever it is I, I agree with Niall I definitely think it'll be Pochettino and I'm still baffled that everyone thinks Ten Hag is the overwhelming favourite um, and the, the better choice it makes no sense to me to be honest um, I think Pochettino has been flirted around it in the past and I think if he can take good control of it because I know in the past and at PSG at the moment he complains a lot of the fact that he's just a coach that's it he doesn't get a say in transfers he doesn't get a say in any of the kind of off-field stuff because that goes to Leonardo and Al-Kaifi. Um, and then obviously at Tottenham, he didn't really have a massive say in the recruitment. I think at United, he should have control. And obviously, I think a sporting director may or may not end up happening in the next few years. So, um, yeah, I think control is the biggest key. And I think the best transition he's going to have is the fact that Rangnick's going to have all the intel when he leaves, when he goes upstairs, uh, to give to the new manager, which I don't think many other managers going into other clubs have the benefit of having. Get Joel in as a technical director at Manchester United. He's got the answers for get you. Get me in and we'll, we'll, get me in and we'll get the treble going, I'm telling you. <laughs> that is it for today's... Treble cheeseburger, more like Joel. <laughs> I wouldn't mind one of them, to be fair. That is it for today's Football Social Daily. Thank you very much for listening. Make sure you are following this podcast or subscribe to this podcast wherever it is you are listening so you'll get the next episode as soon as it's ready later on today it will be the dugout our weekend preview show with pros talking over what they make of the weekend's action who's on it tonight now yeah, we got francis benali let's call you noel well, i mean I've, I've, <laughs> no. I've had far worse jim far worse so don't <laughs> worry about that um we've got francis benali on the dugout this week um, obviously formerly of Southampton and it's been a big week for them big win over Spurs midweek and Ralph Hasenhurtl suggesting that he's going to retire in a couple of years having achieved virtually nothing in the game so it'll be interesting to get <laughs> Francis's take on that um, he'll be joining myself and uh, uh, sports journalist Rob Blanchett on the show nice one well you can get that on this feed later on today like I say make sure you're following and have hit subscribe and you can get the latest sports news at sport-social.co.uk Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode.